Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. During Women's History Month, we celebrate the triumphs of women who paved the way in a range of fields, from politics and law to aviation and technology. In this episode, we're talking with someone who is ensuring a future for girls who otherwise might not have one. Journalist, activist, and author Ruchira Gupta has worked tirelessly to help girls in India, Nepal, and other countries escape the brutal world of child sex trafficking. She'll tell us about Apni App, the global organization she helped found, which empowers women and girls to escape the vicious cycle of prostitution. Ruchira's work with vulnerable women and girls inspired her new novel for young adults, I Kick and I Fly. The story introduces readers to 14-year-old Hira, who is growing up in a red-light district in India. Hira escapes being sold into the sex trade when a local educator teaches her kung fu and helps her understand the value of her body. Ruchira is also a visiting professor at New York University and an Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker. I'm delighted to welcome her to Scholastic Reads. Hi, Ruchira. Welcome to the program. I'm so thrilled to be part of the Scholastic Podcast. Fantastic. Please tell our listeners about your new YA novel, I Kick and I Fly. I Kick and I Fly is about a young girl who's only 14 years old and she's born in a nomadic tribe in India and she's about to be sold into prostitution until a woman's right advocate enrolls her in a Kung Fu program. And then through the practice of Kung Fu, she discovers the power of her body and fights for it. When she wins a gold medal, the entire community, which also doesn't think very much of itself because they are poor, they are oppressed, they are marginalized, they all begin to gain courage from her courage and the community transforms and the rest you have to read the book to find out. So the young heroine is 14 years old. Her name is Hira. Tell us a little bit about the home where she lives and what her neighborhood is like. So Hira means diamond in Hindi. And uh, Hira is like a diamond in the dust because she literally is growing up in a dirt street with about 72 mud huts on both sides of the streets. There is no concrete infrastructure there. There's no running water, no toilets. Most of the mud huts have no doors and no windows, no electricity for sure. And uh, many of the mud huts have a back room behind them. Basically, these rooms are used for prostitution as brothels. And they call the lane Girls' Bazaar to themselves jokingly because this is where girls are sold. There's hunger. The only shops on that mud street are a liquor store selling country liquor and a gambling joint and a little beetle leaf store which sells things like tobacco and a pawn shop. Behind the street is a big stretch of empty ground where the annual cattle fair comes 
And on the other side of the street are the railway tracks. And if you cross the railway tracks, there's a railway platform. This is where Hira grows up. And it's a cattle fair, you say. Yeah. So Hira is growing up in Girls' Bazaar in a small agricultural town, which is in the middle of nowhere. It's on the border of India and Nepal. Very fertile, very green with rice fields and wheat fields and jute growing there. Lots of birds and animals all around. But also there are not very many big markets. So all the farmers have to collect together every year to exchange seeds, sell and buy seeds, fertilizer, their produce. And that is how this cattle fair began, where they would sell their cattle and their produce. Slowly over the years, this cattle fair actually became distorted and became the place where farmers with ready cash would come and buy girls. And many of the stalls inside the cattle fair became striptease bars and they were called orchestra parties. And girls were just sold on stage with little number tags on them as they danced. And inside this tented city, which was the cattle fair, there would be little rooms with just a flap in front where uh, people were taken and girls were taken by customers who bought them. And this is how the cattle fair also became a fair for girls to be sold especially from Hira's nomadic community, which was completely marginalized. What inspired this story, Ruchira? My story, I Kick and I Fly, is really based on true life experiences. I began writing it when a girl just like Hira won a gold medal in karate in the town of Forbesganj, where Girls' Bazaar is located. And how did I meet that girl who won the gold medal? Now, that's a story in itself. I've been running an NGO called Apne Aap, which means self-action in Hindi. And that NGO works amongst nomadic tribes which are marginalized. So marginalized that prostitution is passed down from mother to daughter and pimping from father to son. And if they're trying to escape, then there are people from upper castes and upper classes who beat them and say, no, this is your destiny. To the point that these people actually have begun to believe this is their destiny. And my NGO decided that I would work there and make sure that the girls got into school and they would be able to change their destiny. But it was really, really hard because the mothers were scared. The fathers didn't trust me. The crime gangs which were running that street didn't want me around. They threatened me and all of that. But I persisted. And one of the things I found when I was working there was that to get the girls into school, I had to motivate them. And it was really hard to motivate them. And I would see them being beaten black and blue, the women being beaten black and blue by the criminals, the customers and all of that. So I looked around for a martial arts teacher because I had learned martial arts in school, uh, Kung Fu actually, very inspired by Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon and all that. And then I did find a karate teacher. So there were two of them, a man and a woman. And I began karate classes in our little mud hut, which is also inside Girls' Bazaar, which was our community center. We had also started our community center in a mud hut so that women and girls could just come and go as they pleased and didn't have to think about how would they have the money to even get onto a bus or a taxi. They could just walk there. So that's when I started my first dojo, a kwoon. And then the girls began to come to school. And in the school, I compound, I spoke to the principal and started another coon slash dojo. 
For a long time, the girls would call me Sifu Ruchira, which means teacher Ruchira in Kanfu language. And I quite like that. And I saw the change happen when the girls began to like their bodies again. They hated their bodies because they knew that their bodies were the reason they might be sold. There was so much body shaming and body devaluation, if you will. I had to find a way for them to love their bodies again. And I have, even now in the community center, dance classes, mind classes, theater, and of course, Kung Fu and Karate continue. They suddenly opened up their shoulders when they started learning Kung Fu, began to walk straight. They began to answer back to the boys who would pass comments on them. Things changed. And so I realized the power of Kung Fu and I wanted to share it with the rest of the world. I think... As Gloria Steinem said about my story, she said, this is a story that could save lives. I agree, Ruchira. It's one heck of a debut. So impressive. I would love for you to read an excerpt of I Kick and I Fly for our listeners. Sweat breaks through my skin, even in the freezing cold. My feet take off in the opposite direction and I scream as loud as I can. His footsteps became louder. A hand comes down over my mouth. Another arm holds me in an iron grip. The man is strong, but so am I. I do a back kick into his groin as hard as I can. He yells in pain. Even if I can't break free, I can slow him down. Another set of footsteps gets louder and louder. And the next thing I know, my mother's shouting, let her go. What are you doing? Let her go. Get out of my way. The man yells back. He's still holding me tight. I jab him with a back elbow thrust and we stumble onto the uneven earth. The cold ground gives me some relief. I've put up enough of a fight to prevent him from dragging me too far away from my hut. More voices take up the space around us. People who have come out of their homes. My aunt, a neighbor or two. What's happening? A woman yells. What's going on? My brother Salman's voice. I can see his fury through the fingers spanning my face and use the distraction to open my mouth and bite as hard as I can. Just such an extraordinary book, Ruchira. I can't say enough about it. Tell us about the research that you did before this book ever took shape. Every story has a backstory, Suzanne. This one too, because before I wrote Aiki Can I Fly, I set up my NGO Apnea. But what took me to setting up the NGO Apnea was that I was a journalist and I was walking through the hills of Nepal when I came across rows of villages with missing girls. And I decided that I wanted to find out more. So I began to ask the men drinking tea and playing cards where the girls were. And the answer changed my life because they told me that they were in Bombay. Now, Bombay was nearly 1400 kilometers away and these villages were in remote Himalayan hamlets. So I began as a good journalist, of course, I followed the story and I ended up in the brothels of Bombay and I saw little girls as young as 13, 14 locked up in tiny rooms for years. And I was angry. I was sad. Also, I wanted to do something about it because as a journalist, I'd covered war, I'd covered famine, I'd covered hunger. 
But I'd never seen this kind of exploitation and so intimate that two of little girls on this scale. So I, of course, wanted to tell the story. I made a documentary. It's called The Selling of Innocence on that subject. Followed the trail from Nepal to the villages. And I went on to win an Emmy for outstanding investigative journalism. And when I was on stage in the Broadway Marquis Hotel and everyone was clapping and there were the bright lights, all I could see were the eyes of the women in the brothels of Bombay who had spoken out in my documentary because they said they wanted to save their daughters. So I was getting a lot of offers at that time to join this network, produce another documentary, do this, do that. And I thought, no, I want to go back to the women who spoke in my documentary first. So I went back and we put a straw mat on a floor and sat around in a circle. And I asked the women, I said, what did they want? And that time they said that they wanted to save their daughters from the same destiny that they had. And they said, can you help us? It was a bit daunting. So I said, but I don't know how. And they said, but you know English and you have access to money and networks. I said, that's true, but we have to do it together. We have to form a circle and sort this issue out as women together. And that's why we call the organization Apnea, which means self-action, women worldwide, that we would be women together sorting out this problem of getting daughters into school. And then I didn't even know how to make a business plan. So I asked the women, I said, what do you want to do? What are your dreams? And they said, we have four dreams. We want school for our children. We want a job in an office for ourselves. And that was kind of absurd when you think about the rat infested brothels with 20 rooms to one toilet, iron bars on the window. And then they said they wanted a room of their own where they could sleep for as long as they wanted and nobody would walk in and molest their children or them. And then they wanted those who had bought them and sold them, they wanted them to be punished. They said those who had brokered away our dreams. So basically these four things became our business plan. School, households which were safe and independent, livelihoods which were based on dignity and sustainability, and of course a change in the law to punish the traffickers. We, we hired a room in the red light district, hired a teacher, put a straw mat on the floor and began to teach the kids. And when the kids were ready for school, the principal said he would not admit them. He said, oh, they're children of prostitutes. So then I told the mothers, I said, let's form a circle again. And we formed a women's circle, a mother's group, and went and begged, cried, pleaded to the principal. He admitted the children. And that was our first action on the ground. All these years later now, we've helped more than 20,000 women across the country in India. The circles are replicated in Calcutta, Delhi, Bihar. Thousands of girls have finished school, have jobs. And many of them are like Hira, who have found themselves and have dreams and ambitions. Life is good for them. Behind the story of me being a journalist was that I used to love reading books as a child. And librarians were some of the most important people in my life because my mother enrolled me as a 10-year-old in a library. These librarians would tell me, take this book, take that book. So I lived in the world of stories. I became a free thinker because of the stories I read, because of the family I grew up in, which encouraged ideas, but also the books that I read. 
And so I wanted to be a writer because I used to think the world is unfair and I'd write about it and all of that. But I became a journalist instead because it was the faster thing to do. From journalism, I ended up making this documentary. This documentary took me to this NGO. And now this NGO has brought me to my first dream to write a book. Oh, my goodness. That is extraordinary. I would love for you to describe Hira's mother from I Kick and I Fly. She's such a fierce character, too. A victim in many ways, and yet she fights so hard for her daughter to have a better life. She doesn't give up. She's based on many of the mothers that I have met in Girls Bazaar in Forbes Ganj who have taken on beatings from their traffickers, from their pimps, sometimes even from their husbands, to either come for the apnea meetings because they believe that something could change, or they just trusted me because I seemed more independent, more courageous and more feisty. So they thought, okay, we'll go with whatever she is saying. And also, I think they trusted me because they began to dream that something was possible for their daughters. And they were willing to take on the battles. And I saw it. I saw mothers being beaten. And I saw the change in the mothers, how the mothers began to take our literacy classes so that they could communicate with their daughters who were going to school and also see the power of that. I saw the mothers who were scared to come to our meetings, slowly challenge the men who would say, we'll bury you alive, we'll cut your head off, etc. And they would still walk from that mud hut to our mud hut, which was just 500 feet away, but it was really an emotional journey. And come in spite of the heckling, the shouting, I could go back home in the, to the safety of my garden and my walls, and the women could not. And yet they took this on. And they were very thin and they seemed very frail. Obviously, they were always hungry. There was never enough food. They were making immense sacrifices. So I saw this in the women who were organizing in Apneyap and they did it for their daughters. But what they found along the way was that they did it for themselves because they have become more independent. And I've noticed now that as their daughters are growing up and getting jobs, they actually challenge their daughters. There's a bit of a dialogue between the mother and the daughter where the mother says, I want to do this, which is different from what you want to do. And what's extraordinary is that that red light area that I began working in, uh, Girls Bazaar in Forbes Gang. Over the years that we worked there, we worked there for nearly 20 years now, there were 72 brothels. We did what's called a baseline survey and a student volunteered from a university in America to come and do that baseline survey. She had documented that there were 72 brothels in that area. And today there are only two brothels left and the traffickers are in jail. The women have actually taken over those mud huts and turned them into homes with small businesses for themselves. One woman, for example, has a dancing company and she dances in wedding events. Another woman has a leaf, a tobacconist kind of little shop in the front of her house. Another one is selling vegetables. A third is making masalas, you know, those spices that, are, that Indians use. So everybody has turned things around. And the children are in school. Everything has changed. And the government has now turned those grounds into a stadium where kids are going to play and compete. And we will have Kung Fu and Karate competitions in there. So 
you know, change is possible. And I saw this happen and women like mine do exist. And they're neither good nor bad. They are just courageous. They are human and they are feisty and they have a big heart. Amazing. What a success story. Still, as you look at the issue of child trafficking and sex trafficking globally, what do you see? According to the United Nations, human trafficking is the third largest organized crime in the world, trading in billions of dollars. And some estimates actually say that it could be the second largest organized crime. The three top organized crimes in the world are drug smuggling, arms smuggling and human trafficking. So a girl can be traded or a boy can be traded again and again, whereas drugs can be consumed only once. The average age of a person being trafficked nowadays is between 9 and 13. There's a National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in the U.S. It tracks data and they say a lot of the runaway kids in the U.S. become victims of trafficking. A lot of kids from foster care become victims of trafficking because traffickers, of course, exploit their vulnerability. But another new thing which is happening is that, and of course, intersectionality, which we all talk about, who are the trafficked in the U.S.? They are not from outside the country. Most of the kids trafficked in the U.S. are from inside the country. And they are normally poor. They are normally female. They are normally from a marginalized race, black, or from Native American communities. And they're teenagers. So intersectionality really is something which we have to notice when we think about it. Because traffickers have moved online and they are using even things like artificial intelligence to seduce, trick and lure kids into doing things online so that the kids become used to doing those things. And then they recruit them into trafficking situations. And the kids are at an age when they are feeling low, when they have low self-esteem, they are wondering about their body. There's a sense of alienation from the grown-ups around them. So these AI bots are offering them approval and uh, telling them, hey, what kind of shirt are you wearing? Do you want to wear a red one instead of pink one? Or you're looking pretty in that. And then from body shaming to body approval to body commodification, there's a pipeline right now. The Center for Disease Control just last week released a research study saying that one of the biggest pandemics in America is teen anxiety and mental health issues among teenagers. And if you read the study more carefully, you will find the root causes are exactly the issues that I've touched upon in my book. Bullying, bodily autonomy, poverty, homelessness, hunger, food insecurity. How can we offer them something which is the alternate to all this? How do we say there's bodily autonomy compared to bodily shaming? How do we say instead of bullying, there's friendship and equality? How can we say that instead of alienation, there's community? So all these things are there in the book. I am so thankful to you, Ruchera, for sharing your, your courage and brilliance with us. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you, Suzanne. Let's kick and fly. My great thanks again to author and activist Ruchira Gupta for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about I Kick and I Fly and for other great women's history titles, 
check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.